This morning, I would encourage you to take your Bibles with me and turn to Isaiah chapter 46. Isaiah 46, as we continue our series here in this middle portion of Isaiah's book entitled, Behold Your God. Uh, This morning, uh, really from the beginning of chapter 46, we are once again going to take a look at who God is of why God's presence and work in our lives actually matters in real time. And I trust that we will be encouraged and that we will be transformed by what we see here today. Uh, As I read, I'm actually going to begin in uh, verse 20 of chapter 45, because I think a lot of the things that, that God says to his people at the end of that chapter really set the stage uh, for the first four verses of chapter 46. As I read, remember, this is God's word, and he has given it and preserved it for our good. Hear it now. Isaiah 45, beginning in verse 20. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, you survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told you this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And There is no other God besides me. A righteous God and a Savior, there is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is no other. By myself I have sworn from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me our righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all who were incensed against him. In the Lord all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. Bel bows down, Nebo stoops. Their idols are on beasts and livestock. These things you carry are born as burdens on weary beasts. They stoop, they bow down together. They cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been born by me from before your birth carried from the womb. Even to your old age, I am he. And to gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made and I will bear. I will carry and will save. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, I pray that we would see Jesus Christ as the fairest of all that we would know that you are present with us as your people, and that it is not only your intention, but your everlasting, trustworthy promise to do us good, even as you magnify your own name to the very ends of the earth. Lord, I pray that we would examine our hearts, that we would examine our lives, that you would show us the objects of our worship, that God, in your grace and mercy, that you would bring us up short, 
such that you might comfort us in yourself and in the realities of the gospel message, such that you might comfort us in Jesus Christ, who is our Savior. We pray these things in his name. Amen. This morning, as we take a close look at these first four verses in Isaiah 46, I want us to start by thinking about our tomorrows, by thinking about the future, by thinking about ideas and thoughts and emotions that we often connect to the future. As we think about the hope that we have, or maybe the fear that we experience, what really motivates those emotions? As we consider our tomorrows, where do we find joy in that expectation? Or perhaps perhaps what is troubling about that expectation? Isaiah, as a prophet, is one who often spoke about tomorrow, about the future. And here in Isaiah chapter 46, he's developing themes like desperation, frustration, and fear. But he meets those things, and really God meets those things with ideas like joy, satisfaction, contentment, and yes, hope. As we think about our tomorrows, as we think about the future, as we think about how that plays out this week and next week and next month and next year, as we look at Isaiah 46 together, we're we're really going to look at this passage just through two main ideas or two main points. The idea of exhaustion, that as a group of people look toward the future, they find nothing but exhaustion. And secondly, we're going to look at this idea of salvation. That as another group of individuals looks toward the future in and through the person and work of God, that they actually find salvation and real Before we get to those two points and before we look at the specifics of these verses together, though, there there are a few things that I'd like to say that I think are important for us to set the context of this passage. First, remember that in this middle section of Isaiah's book, chapters 40 through 55 that we're looking at together this winter and spring, Isaiah is talking to a group of people who are yet to experience but quickly heading toward exile in the land of Babylon. The people of Israel have been disobedient, rebellious, willfully rebellious toward God and toward His truth for generations. As a result, God is going to discipline His people through the invasion of the Babylonian army, through the destruction of their temple, and through the deportation of their most prominent individuals in Israelite culture. That is the setting of this prophecy and all of the prophecies that Isaiah gives here in these chapters. It's important for us to understand that really everything that's being talked about is a promise, an expectation, a look into the future. 
But I also think it's important for us to understand, especially as we see God's saving promises to this group of people, that we understand the application of those promises is much broader and more significant. But the application of those promises flows to us as God's covenant people. Second, as we think about Isaiah 46 in particular, what is being talked about here is a future that even goes beyond the Babylonian captivity. Last week, Steve, in in Isaiah 45, introduced us to this character of Cyrus, the king of Persia. We begin to understand, we begin to find out through God's revelation that Babylon will actually be conquered too. That Cyrus, the king of Persia, will swoop in. Later in Isaiah 46, it calls him a bird of prey. That he will attack, besiege Babylon, and eventually destroy their kingdom. So as we think about the timeline, Israel, or really Judah, the southern kingdom, will be taken over by Babylon in about 600 B.C. And a generation later, in 540 B.C., Persia will, will conquer Babylon. It's important as we think about what's being discussed here in Isaiah 46. The other thing that I want us to see is that Isaiah the prophet, and really God himself, is setting an evacuation scene for us here. In the midst of this coming Persian invasion, the Babylonians are scrambling to get away. That's actually reflected in the the original language of the first two verses here in Isaiah 46. It's very quick, staccato-like language. Da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Why? Because God wants to underline the fact that the people are rushing. They are running away from a coming judgment and a sure destruction. Really, there are only two points here this morning because that's really the big idea of this passage. You'll notice in verse 1 that we're introduced to Bel and Nebo, the gods of Babylon. And those gods and the experiences of the people who worship those gods are directly contrasted with Yahweh the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God of Israel. The last thing I want to say by way of preface is that I know because we are 21st century Americans raised in a culture that prizes individuality and self-sufficiency, if we are in that place this morning, then we need to know right from the outset that this passage of Scripture is going to get all up in the middle of our hearts and minds. It is going to step on our toes. Why? Because God is rebuking a people who are committed to living that way. But it's also going to be a message of grace. Why? Because God is showing His people a better way. With all these things in mind, let's look now at that first point, this idea of exhaustion. Exhaustion. In verse 1, we're actually introduced to two false gods, two idols who are actually exhausted. Look at it with me again. Bel bows down, Nebo stoops. The first god, Bel, that's a reference to the chief god of the Babylonian pantheon, Marduk or in a more general sense, Bel. He is is the chief god. He's the representation of power 
He is the God who is responsible in their minds for bringing order in the midst of chaos. The God who is responsible for creation and the preservation of the Babylonian people. He was worshipped in Babylon really through multiple idols, but one primary idol that lived in their primary temple, an idol that was made of, of a majestic, heavy kind of dense wood that was then overlaid with ornate silver and gold work. Nebo, the other god mentioned here, is the second in command. He's actually the son of Marduk in their tradition. He represents wisdom and fate. He's the master of destiny. During the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, really during the lifetime of Isaiah and the generations to follow, Nebo was, was worshipped almost equally with Bel. But where are these gods in verse 1? They're not active. They're not strong. Their wisdom is not on display. No, they are bowed down and stooped. You could also translate these words as falling down or collapsing. Think about someone who is undergoing an incredible physical effort, and they just become literally physically exhausted. What's the result? Their body gives way, their legs become rubber, and they actually fall to the ground. That's the image that God presents of these false gods here in Isaiah 46.1. That for all of their power, for all of their supposed wisdom, they are reduced to nothing at the onset of the Persian invasion. That they are, in fact, nothing in light of overwhelming circumstances. It's interesting if you reference part of what I read from Isaiah 45, God says something at the end of verse 23 that has a direct impact on what we just read in verse 1. God promises that to him every knee would bow and every tongue swear allegiance. Without getting too far ahead of ourselves, we see Bel and Nebo, again, the highest of the high, the greatest of the great in Babylon, bowing and stooping before the circumstances before the providence of one who is greater. But it's more than just the gods who are exhausted in this passage. We also see that the animals or livestock of the Babylonians is, are exhausted. Look again at verse 1. Their idols are on beasts and livestock. The end of verse 1. And they are burdens on weary beasts. The picture here is that the Babylonian people who are frantic, who are desperate in the light of the Persian invasion, what do they do? They take down these majestic, marvelous, large, hefty, ornate idols, and they literally load them onto perhaps carts for beasts of burden. And so the picture here is that camels and donkeys and oxen, and one commentator I read said maybe even elephants, uh, they, they're employed to carry these idols out of Babylon in hopes that the god can, gods can, can get away from the Persians. And we're supposed to begin to see the ridiculousness of this. That it's actually donkeys and camels and oxen who are responsible for the salvation of Bel and Nebo. 
But what is the condition of these animals as they frantically run away, as perhaps they're being whipped and goaded out of the city? Well, (laughs) they're weary and they're worn. So it's not just the gods who are exhausted, it's, it's actually the livestock, it's the property of the people who are exhausted. But it gets worse. Because we see here, in verse 1, that the people are exhausted too. Look again at the specific wording of this verse. Bel bows down, Nebo stoops, so the gods are exhausted. Their idols are on beasts and livestock, the animals are exhausted. These things you carry. So it's not just the animals that are working so hard to save the gods of the Babylonians. It is actually who? It's the people who are working to save their objects of worship. It is the people who are trying to protect their gods from an invading army. It is the people who are actually trying to preserve their own hopes, their own dreams for the future. And so what what do we have playing out in this passage? Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Remember, Bel represents what? Power. Nebo represents wisdom and destiny. But it is now the people who have to be the strong ones. And it is the people who are trying so hard to preserve their own destiny. There's a sense in which as we read this verse, as we look into the the desperation of these passages, we're supposed to sort of chuckle a little bit. And maybe cry all at the same time. Because what's being described here is, is desperate and really quite pathetic. The people are running for their lives, and they are responsible even for their gods. When we add all this up, the exhaustion of the idols, the exhaustion of the animals, the exhaustion of the people, we we see a, a holistic or a total kind of exhaustion that really describes their entire national cause. As these people try to run away with their gods, what does it say in verse 2? They stoop. They bow down together. They cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. For all of the work, for all of the running, for all of the hope, what does it amount to? Nothing. The picture painted for us here is really one of absolute failure. It's a picture of complete chaos and disaster. All of that work, all of that energy, all of that furious attempt at safety and freedom and a future, everything stoops. Everything bows down. Everything and everyone collapses. As I considered this passage this week, The the picture that kept coming back to my mind is something that I think will be familiar to almost all of us. It's toward the end of a a film that I think really all of us, if you've not seen this movie, you really need to catch up. 
The Wizard of Oz. Right? Why would that picture be stuck in my head? Because for all of the majesty, for all of the power, for all of the wonder, for all of the smoke and lightning and thunder and bravado that is present in the Wizard of Oz, what is he really? He's a scared little man behind a curtain who gets exposed by a terrier. He's nothing. Nothing. And he has no power. Now here's what's scary. If you read The Wizard of Oz, then you realize that the overarching theme of that book is what? Self-sufficiency. The lion didn't need anything because he already had all the courage he already needed. He had been displaying it through the whole book. The tin man didn't need a heart, right? Because he had already been displaying compassion. The scarecrow didn't need a brain because he'd already been making strategic decisions for the good of other people. And Dorothy didn't even need a way out because she had the ruby slippers. So just dig deep and find it in yourself and everything will work out swimmingly. Right? Wrong. That's a lie. And it's a lie that God attacks here in the first two verses of Isaiah 46. If these people were enough, if these gods were enough, then God would just look at them and say, you know what, you're a really powerful nation. Wow, man. Y'all just kind of go do your thing and I'll just stay over here with my people. No, 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 no. God says, I see you trying. I see your effort. It's not enough and it never will be. You're tired. Your animals are tired. Your gods are tired. Your political cause, your national hopes are dashed. It's not working, and it never, ever will. How do we apply this passage to our lives? Well, I think there are two applications that grow out of this whole idea or theme of exhaustion. First, we need to know, and we, by God's grace, need to believe that this is always where idolatry will leave us. Let me say that again. Exhaustion is always where idolatry will leave us. Let me make this very personal in my own life. One of the things that I am committed to, one of the bad things that I'm committed to, one of the false gods that I love to worship is my own image. I love to look good in front of other people. And I don't just mean physically, though I am very attractive. Um, <laughs> I mean by way of reputation. Another way of describing the false god of reputation is by saying that I'm committed to a lifestyle of people-pleasing. If you, like me, are committed to that, where does it leave you? Exhausted. Because you are constantly framing your whole life, all of your time, all of your decisions, all of your words around the opinions and perspectives and delights of other people. You have to carry that reputation, carry 
that image. And when anything begins to attack it, you just work harder to protect it. I don't know what your idols are. And I certainly have far more than just that one. But know that if we this morning, if you this morning are committed to worshiping something other than the God of grace, the God of power, the God of mercy, and the God of salvation, then that God, that lifestyle will leave you exhausted, helpless, hopeless, and without any real promise of a future. You will come up empty every single time. There's really a second application, too, that I think is important for us to see here. Evil will not go unpunished. As the people of Israel looked at the Babylonian Empire, at the war machine that was the Babylonian Empire, they could not imagine anything stronger, greater, or more marvelous in that moment. Babylon was completely overwhelming to these people. But what is God saying? Their time is coming. They are not in control. Their power, their might, their strength, it will be exhausted. They will fall. As we think about our lives, as we think about the most difficult things in our lives, we should be encouraged as God's people to know that the wicked, that the powers of this world who are opposed to the Lord Jesus Christ, they will fall. Every knee will bow before Him. Maybe not today. Maybe not tomorrow. Maybe not even in our lifetime. But our experiences do not determine reality, nor do they determine the will of God. He has promised, and He will do it. The second point really is all about salvation. That's in verses 3 and 4. As we look at this theme of salvation and really the, 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 the meat of what God is saying here, there are five things that I want us to notice, and to make it easy, they all start with the letter P. As a pastor, there are certain letters that it's much easier to alliterate around, and P is one of them. Now, but before I even get to that, I, I want you to notice how verse 3 starts. Because Bel and Nebo, they are bowed down, they are stooped over, they are exhausted, they are collapsed. And verse 3 starts with what? Listen to me. God speaks. He proclaims something. That's the first P. God is proclaiming. He, he creates a direct contrast from the very beginning of verse 3. Because He speaks into creation. He begins to promise something to His people. He is clearly active in a way that these false gods never could be. This is an immediate, it's, it's a shocking it is a thunderous kind of contrast that God uses very much on purpose to get our attention in the midst of desperate, confusing, overwhelming circumstances. There are many times as a youth pastor that I kind of have to use this sort of language. And if God has gifted me with anything, it is a rather large voice. 
There are times, especially with middle schoolers, no offense if you're a middle schooler, I love you. I love you desperately, deeply, and I will love you forever, I promise. But sometimes middle schoolers have a way of sort of scattering and getting maybe a little distracted. There are a lot of times when working with middle schoolers, I have to say, listen to me. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. The good thing is that when God speaks, it always has an effect. God says, listen to me. Okay, God, you have our attention. What is it that you want to say? Well, second P here, God is preserving. How do I know that? Look at who he addresses. O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel. God is saying, I know you feel scattered. I know you feel desperate. I know that as you think about the future, the Babylonian captivity, and everything that is coming toward you, you are overwhelmed, you are scared, and you are scraping to find any kind of worth and identity. God says, I see you. You are still the same group of people that I've made promises to. That's why he calls them the house of Jacob. He established the house of Jacob. And there's a broadening of God's promise because he references the remnant of Israel. We could get distracted here, but let me try to be quick about this. Israel, in the time of Isaiah, was divided into two kingdoms, Israel in the north and Judah in the south. Israel was actually taken off earlier by Assyria. And it was Judah that was the primary focus of Isaiah's attention who gets taken off by Babylon. But here in Isaiah 46... God is promising something. I see you, Jacob, that's a reference to Judah, and I see everyone who is left after all these years of exile and hopelessness from Israel too. I see all of my people, and God is preserving and preserving and preserving that people for his own glory and for their good. The third thing about this salvation is that we see God's continual presence. And this is where this passage, quite frankly, just starts getting really beautiful and really personal. So he's gained our attention. He's talked about this general work of preservation. He sees us as individual people, as a group of of his covenant people. And then he says this, who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb, even to your old age I am he, and to gray hairs I will carry you. What is God saying? There is never, 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 never a time in your entire existence that he does not see you and walk with you. It's more than that. We're going to get to that in just a second. But we need to understand together as God's people, we need to get a hold of this reality that God walks with us through every moment of every day from conception to the grave. That really sets up the power of the next thing we see about the salvation. Not only is God proclaiming something and preserving a people, not only is God continually present, but He is personal. He takes the work of preservation. He takes the work of salvation personally. How do I know that? Well, I'm going to read verse 4 
for us a little bit differently this time. Even to your old age, I am he. To gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made, I will bear, I will carry, and will save. What do you think God's point there is? He is doing something. He is taking this work personally. The beautiful thing is that that, the first reference there in verse 4, I am he, that's, that's a touch of his personal covenant name. He is saying, listen, do you remember that God who made covenant promises to Moses around the burning bush? The I am that I am? That's who I am. I haven't stopped being that person, and I cannot stop being that person. I am committed to you. (laughs) He's not leaving any doubt. He is identifying himself as distinct and active. He is doing the work, and he alone is is doing this work. And what is that work? Well, our last P, it is a powerful, a powerful work. We said earlier in this passage that it is the people who are carrying the gods, the animals who are carrying the gods. Who's doing the carrying in verses 3 and 4? It's God. I mean, just look at it. Almost every single time he references a verb, you have been born by me. You've been carried from the womb. I will carry you to gray hairs. I have made, I will bear, I will carry. There's the contrast. The false gods, those who worship idols, are exhausted. God never gets tired. He continues to bear up, to carry, and he saves the best for last. I will save. There's the hope of a tomorrow. There is the sure future. And it rests not in our activity, not in our efforts, or the gods of our own making, but in the strong, safe Saving hands of God Almighty, who promises to be present in the midst of and through every single circumstance. What we see here is a full and final salvation. As we think about this work together, my mind, my mind is drawn back to actually something that happened this week. I was hanging out with Liz Lyles at our nursery desk during women's ministry Bible study. And while she and I were talking about some things, a great cry erupted down the hall. And all we could hear was, Mama! Mama! It was desperate. One of our nursery workers did a fantastic job trying to console this child. But in all of her work, it just got louder and more desperate. Mama, mama, mama. And here's what was interesting. That mother was down the hall, behind a closed door, probably 40, 50 feet away from this child. She recognized the cry of her child. 
she came out that door, and literally, as soon as he hit her arms, guess what happened? (laughs) She was carrying him, and he knew that it was going to be okay. Why? Because he knew his mother and her character. He knew that in that moment, she was stronger and better than any boo-boo. We need to understand that what God is saying here, I see you, I love you, and you don't even have to ask, you don't even have to cry out for me to be carrying you through every single circumstance of life. You're already there, in my hands, in my arms, being borne up through every circumstance, every trial, every temptation, every hardship. I'm not going to drop you, I'm not going to hurt you, and you will have a future in and through Jesus. That's the reality that God is driving home time and time and time again here in Isaiah 46. So where does that leave us? It leaves us in a place that I think mirrors so much of what happens in our children's ministry. So much of what happens in your homes if you have small children or grandchildren. This should leave us as God's people in this posture. When a small child does that, what is he or she asking for? Pick me up. Hold me. Show me affection. Bring me comfort. Be my strength. As I look out on this room of people, I see a lot of very intelligent, well-educated, strong, capable, upwardly mobile, financially independent people. Doesn't matter. We live like this. Every moment of every day, we strive to live like this. And knowing that as we live like this, God never ceases to let us down. He never ceases to let go. He never ceases to love, to lead, to guide, to protect, to provide, to do us good. You might say, well, Matthew, that that promise sounds profound and wonderful, and it's something that that I want, but isn't Isn't Isaiah talking to the old covenant people of God? Isn't this passage really just about the Babylonian captivity and the Persian invasion? Well, yes and no. What did Jesus say to his disciples in John chapter 10? Well, let's listen to it. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. There it is. There's that same promise of salvation. As one pastor whom I love... (laughs) said one time, we are caught in the double grip of God's grace. 
And there's nothing that we can do or anyone else can do to get ourselves out of it. We rest secure in His grasp. We are walking through hard circumstances. We can't boot up the computer or turn on the television or visit social media without more fears, more desperation, more overwhelming circumstances meeting us at every single turn. That has literally been our lives for at least the past three years. Newsflash, that's always life in a fallen world. So where do we find hope? In the grasp of Jesus Christ. In the hands of God Almighty, who is orchestrating all of human history for the eternal good of His people. No, it may not feel like it. No, it may not look like it. No, you might have a better plan. But know that God is at work. And know that God is doing us good. Here's the big point of Isaiah 46. The big point, really, of everything that God has said and everything that we've looked at together today. Bel is not the powerful one. Nebo is not the master of destiny. We are not the powerful ones. We are not the masters of our destiny. There is only one who is actually powerful. And only one in whom we can find real hope for tomorrow and real enduring salvation from sin and all the circumstances of our life that have been introduced by it. That one is God Almighty. That one is Yahweh, the covenant maker and covenant keeper. That one is Jesus Christ who holds us in His hands forevermore. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are so incredibly thankful that Your Word is full of promises. We're thankful that those promises are sure. We're thankful, God, that those promises will be fulfilled. Thank You, God, that You never leave us nor forsake us. Thank you, God, that you will carry us, that you will bear us up, that you always have been and you always will. Thank you, God, that from our mother's womb, even down to old age, you know us. You walk with us. You bear us up. God, I pray that we would turn from idols, that we would turn from finding our strength and fleeting satisfaction in ourselves or anything else, and that we would turn toward you with arms raised, knowing that we are held and knowing that we need nothing else. We pray these things now in Jesus' name, amen.